Welcome to Food Farm Talk on CFRU 93.3 FM in Guelph, Ontario, Canada, and on podcast on all the major platforms. This show is a talk with Professor Ralph Martin about his new book called Food Security from Excess to Enough. I'm Paul Smith, and I'm the host of a series of shows on farm sustainability. Please follow the podcast and also our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook feeds. And we're always interested in what you might think. And you can leave comments on those social media feeds. We're broadcasting here from the treaty lands of the Mississauga of the New Credit of the Anishinaabeg Nation, part of lands within the Between the Lakes Treaty of 1792. So today we're here with uh, Ralph Martin. He's a recently retired plant ag professor here at the University of Guelph, and we're going to talk about his book, Food Security, From Excess to Enough. Ralph and I know each other from a few different circles here in Guelph, but most notably, uh, Ralph was a member of the uh, Soil Health Working Group that I had a role in creating and working with in the development of the New Horizons uh, Ontario Soil Health and Conservation Strategy, which is mentioned uh, quite a few times in the book. It is. (laughs) So welcome, Ralph. And thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Your book is an interesting mix of science and philosophy and memoir, reflection, and, and a manifesto for change. Food and farming seem to tie everything together that you've put in. And food security certainly is a focus, but the book ranges way beyond any narrow view of those words. And I hope today we can give uh, the listeners a bit of a glimpse into your book and leave them wondering what more they might discover if they go ahead and read your book. So why don't we start with a short reading. I think you've picked a couple of readings from your book uh, to give the listeners a bit of a flavor for the book. Sure, happy to do that. Um, This one is from chapter six. It's the chapter on wasted food. I crawled up the ladder to the higher branches of the snow apple tree for the umpteenth time. My pail wasn't large, and this time I didn't want to fill it too quickly. My hand followed my eye to the closest apple within reach. I plucked, swiveled my flexible eight-year-old body on the ladder, leaned back against the top rung, and chomped. The sweet taste filled my mouth. Below, my cousins and siblings were climbing and stooping to pick and then pour apples into bags for the apple butter hall to Wellesley. I noticed my uncle Addison approaching my tree So I took another quick bite, tossed the half-eaten apple, and got back to work. Were you eating this apple? he asked a moment later. Yep, he was pointing to my apple. I nodded. Come on down, pick it up and finish it. Ah, but there are so many apples all over this orchard, and they're going for apple butter anyway. That doesn't matter. If you start to eat a perfectly good apple, then eat it all. In our family, we don't waste. I never forgot that lesson. That's a good one, actually, and and you tell quite a few stories through the book about about different parts of your life, about childhood, like that one, and about your academic journey and some parenting experience as well, and <laughs> different life perspectives that you uh, maybe you can tell us a bit about your your journey and your life journey that brought you to where you are now. Sure, just a kind of a snapshot. Sure. Well, I I like to start by saying I grew up on a farm in Wallenstein, Ontario, and uh, I would always tell my students if they knew where Wallenstein was, they would get an extra mark on their (laughs) midterm. 
And then I, when I was 19, I decided to go to university. I ended up in Ottawa I, at Carleton. I thought I would study political science. But the first night that I was there, just before classes start, started, there was a strange person there with long hair, beard, and sandals. And he was talking about the value of a liberal arts education. And uh, he persuaded me during the course of his talk that I should probably check out what it would be like to have a liberal arts education. And there was a guy sitting beside me, and he told me that he was going to a new course called a Unified Liberal Arts Program. And so I ended up taking that course instead. That was mostly philosophy. And the, the strange guy that influenced me was David Suzuki. I'd never heard oh, wow. about him before, but uh, <laughs> he was the one that got me into a unified liberal arts program. Uh, then for my master's, I ended up doing a master's in biology, again at Carleton. And then my PhD was in uh, plant science at McGill, McDonald College. And that there I was intercropping corn and soybean. Mm. Then I went to Nova Scotia, taught there for 21 years. And while I was there, I started the organic Agriculture Centre of Canada, came to Guelph in 2011 as the Law of Law Chair of Sustainable Food Production, and just retired in 2019. That's an interesting story. I know it's only a small slice. <laughs> you did a lot of other things in between all of that, of course, too. <laughs> we'll talk about different parts of the book, and just to kind of illustrate and give readers a sense of that. So you start and end the book with discussions about Indigenous people's perspectives on earth and food and stewardship and and this seems to be the the challenge of our gener or this generation in Canada to acknowledge and try to integrate uh, indigenous perspectives uh, into the way we look at the world mm -hmm. uh, and you have a bunch of a series of stories <clears throat> about your experiences that drew you to to do that so maybe you can just Tell us a little bit about that. Well, um, I knew some Mi'kmaq when I was living in Nova Scotia, and they had a, a big impact on me. And um, I know some people here in Ontario, too, at Six Nations. And uh, the book by Robin Wall Kimmerer, Braided Sweetgrass, uh, I think is an excellent book, and I highly encourage people to read that. One of the stories is that I, I was going to bring uh, someone in to talk to my class uh, about Indigenous food systems. And uh, I told this woman that she had 50 minutes, and uh, I was wondering what title she wanted to use. And then she said to me, well, I want to talk about food and medicine. I said, no, 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 you don't understand. We've only got 50 minutes. I only want you to talk about food. And then she said, no, 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 you don't understand. <laughs> she said, if I'm going to talk about food, whether I have five minutes or 50 minutes, I have to talk about food and medicine together. So that mm -hmm. was my first lesson. Yeah. Even before she started lecturing, I thought, aha. In her worldview, food, food medicine. and medicine go together. Yeah. There's also the story, I, I met an indigenous, a Dene indigenous elder up at, at a conference um, in Toronto, and he talked about how in their language, they don't have a word for climate change, and they talk about unusual happenings. And to illustrate mm. this, he said that one day he was outside and he heard a real clatter and he went to check it out, and there was a raccoon uh, getting into some of the things in the backyard. And he said this was highly unusual because they'd never seen a raccoon that far north before. I, I think the other thing that I've learned, and, and Robin Wall Kimmerer talks about this in her book, is that in the private property view of our Western civilization, gifts are free. 
But in an indigenous gift economy, she says, gifts are not free. In fact, they're about a relationship mm-hmm. and about reciprocity. Yeah. I thought that was really important for her to point out. I needed to learn that. And the more I think about that, the more I think that if we look at an indigenous worldview and think about the gifts that we receive from Mother Earth, there is a, a bit of obligation there. There's reciprocity and relationship as we relate back in kind to Mother Earth. Yeah, it's a fundamental mm-hmm. underpinning of And the French and British learned that, sometimes the hard way. Yeah, I think the French yeah. better than the British yeah. learned, yeah. Yeah, Pontiac taught the lesson to the British. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's another little story, it's probably good to, because uh, it's such a cool story, shows you as a person and your interest in food and ag. The story about you, your mother, the queen, and cleaning the barn uh, with your grandpa. <laughs> Just tell us that. Well, one too. my my dear mother has always loved the royal family, and in fact, I think she still has pictures of Princess Elizabeth and Princess Margaret. I was about six years old, and the queen was coming to Kitchener, and she thought it would be a great honor for me to go with her to Kitchener and stand on the sidewalk and see the queen. And I said, okay, but what do we do? And she said, well, the queen goes by, and there's a big car, and it doesn't have a roof, and she stands up and waves, and and then you can wave back at her. And I said, oh. And she said, well, if you don't want to do that, I guess you'll have to stay at home. And I said, oh. And then she said, and today, Grandpa's uh, cleaning the barn. He's cleaning manure out of the barn, so you'd have to help him do that. And I said, oh. (laughs) (laughs) She thought that would be deterrent. eh? (laughs) She thought it would be a deterrent. But for me, that was a real draw. So I, I went to the barn, helped my Grandpa clean up. And that day, he had a little fork for me. He sandpapered the handle so that it was nice and smooth, and it was exactly my height. So while he was putting manure into the manure spreader, I could use this little fork, this fork that was now mine, and I could actually help. I think I only got about 10 forkfuls in by the time the manure spreader was full, but that didn't matter. I had helped, and Mm -hmm. he uh, he was sure to tell me that I was a big help. So that was much better than seeing the queen. And as I say in the book, I was willing to save the que- uh, wave for the queen for another day. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. That's a good story. Early in the book, you talk a lot about sort of the ethics underlying the food system and the market economy and inequality we have uh, in the world today and have had for centuries. And you weave in a lot of the uh, a lot of ideas from different prominent thinkers and scientists in the world. I didn't notice David Suzuki there, but you brought him in anyway. <laughs> right. Maybe you can talk about that part of the book and sort of what you're trying to convey to readers through that. Uh, one of the stories that always captured my interest was when I was in first year university, we read uh, Dostoevsky, The Brothers Karamazov, and the story within the story was the story about the Grand Inquisitor. And the Grand Inquisitor was in Spain during the 16th century, and uh, he was trying to keep everything in order, and sometimes with rather harsh methods. The story is about how Christ came back to 16th century Spain, and his intention was just to be quiet and to move around quietly to see how people were doing. 
but he couldn't help doing the odd miracle here and there. <laughs> and this was drawing a bit too much attention. So the Grand Inquisitor had him arrested and put <laughs> in jail. So then the Grand Inquisitor went to visit him in jail. Through this whole time, um, Jesus said very little. And the Grand Inquisitor was just asking him and why he would do this and why he would disrupt the order that they had in society at, at this time. And he said, you know, you were all about freedom, and it took us 1,500 years to clean up the mess you made the last time when you encouraged everybody to go for freedom. And now we are giving people bread. In fact, they do all the work, and it comes to us, and we organize everything for, for them and give it back. But we have order in society, and people really can't handle freedom. So could you please just go away and leave us alone? And, and that's about where the, where the story ends. And I'm fascinated by that story because it seems to me that today, uh, you know, at that time they were building great cathedrals. And in some ways those cathedrals supposedly helped people to look up and to appreciate the majesty of creation and mm -hmm. what was possible. But in other ways, it was all about order that was imposed mm -hmm. in people. Today, the cathedrals are these great big glass towers of um, large corporations and so on. And later in the book, I talk about the uh, Scots who came through the Highland Clearances and ended up in North America, or the Dutch who um, escaped after the Second World War and came to Canada and set up farms, or the Mennonites who left Europe and then went to Pennsylvania or some went to Russia and Ukraine and then came to Canada. I'm wondering about our ancestors would say if they knew how much freedom we had given up to the corporations who now insist that farmers buy retail and sell wholesale and consumers are accepting it largely for convenience. Mm -hmm. But with all that convenience comes less and less freedom, in my opinion. And I, I also talk a little bit about Wendell Berry. And mm -hmm. Wendell Berry says that in this wonderful book called Life is a Miracle, and he talks about how we need to increase our eyes to acres ratio. In other words, we need more people looking at the land. And recently, it's gone exactly the other way. We have probably mm -hmm. more sensors per acre now. <laughs> but I think I tell the story in the book of my grandpa on the running board of his um, seed drill, and the horses were pulling it, and he had the seed drill set to make sure that he was putting the minimum rate of seed over the field that he was seeding. But every once in a while, I noticed he'd take his hand into the grain box, and he'd pull it out, and he'd throw an arc of seed. And I said, why are you doing that? And he said, oh, it grows really well there. So he knew. Oh, it was um, precision egg. Yeah, it was a precision egg <laughs> <laughs> a long time ago. Knowledge. <laughs> That's yeah. right. And that knowledge was in his heart and head. Yeah. And he just knew the farm so mm -hmm. well. Yeah, the data seems to be what we're trying to substitute for that eyes to acres ratio. Yes, yeah. And that kind of leads to... And the, that's not to say that I'm against data. Yeah. And I, I think we can have both, but I, I think we still need human eyes yeah. and and the human sense senses and our perception um, and our relationship with the land to really make good decisions. 
Yeah, well, we could talk about that for the rest of the time. In <laughs> fact, I think. Yeah. But it does segue to to another part of your book where you talk about uh, how we now are focused on feeding nine or ten billion people, right. and and that uh, becomes the the rationale for all kinds of things that are embarked upon. And you sort of take issue with that as a justification for lots of things in modern agriculture. And you can't go to a farm meeting these days without people talking about nine billion right. or ten billion. Well, and that happened when I was a kid in 4-H. Like mm-hmm. I remember being at meetings and uh, people then saying that there are going to be more and more people in the world, and our job in agriculture is is to feed them. There is some questioning now. Demographers are saying that we may not go to ten or eleven billion when you look at some of the new stats mm-hmm. and and uh, the fact that even in Africa there are much smaller families now than there there used to be. That's one thing. But then the other thing, of course, is, uh, and it relates to the story I read, is the wasted food. At least 40% of food in Canada is wasted. Let's say it's 40%. And, and then I look at uh, situations like uh, those farmers who are farming organically, and even though they're only about 2% of farms in Canada, mm-hmm. their average yields are about 25% less, anywhere between 20 and 25% less on average. And if we think about the fact that we're wasting 40% of food, we could think about how we reduce waste. And it's not only the food that's wasted, it's the fact that the food that we do eat is food that's often not very good for us, and we're eating too much Mm -hmm. of it. So if we stopped wasting... I think then we could look again at production, and there, there's a paper I cite that looks at the fact that we probably could feed the world by farming organically, provided that we reduced wasted food by 50%, and that we only fed feed to livestock and not food. Uh, food should only be for humans, and any food-grade grain should only go to people and livestock should only eat feed. And their original purpose was that. And in fact, the and maybe I'm getting a little too far off track here now, but the Mennonite farmers in Europe in the 1700s were known as clover farmers. And their land was improving while the land of some of their neighbors was not improving because they were growing mostly grain. So maybe it's in my genes uh, <laughs> and that I get so excited about clover and forages and, and so on. But that's the feed that at least ruminants can eat. And it seems to me that we have this little blip in history now where we're so focused on improving the gain in chicken, like we used to take seven kilograms of feed to get one kilogram of broiler meat. Now it's, um, you know, somewhere around 1.7 or 1.6 mm-hmm. kilograms to get one kilogram of broiler meat. Yep. We've got a lot of efficiency, but that efficiency is sometimes at the cost of feeding food grade grain products, or at least using land to grow grain where we could be using that land to grow uh, grain for people. We wouldn't have done that 100 years ago, and I will bet that 100 years from now, now, mind you, I won't be here to, <laughs> to, <laughs> to test <check>. that, <laughs> but yeah. um, I'm pretty sure that 100 years from now, we're, we're not going to have the luxury of feeding food to livestock. 
what you've just said sort of raises the question too of uh, you know ruminants, beef and and sh- sheep and so on, right? Eating uh, and that's sort of the one of the most controversial issues right now for urbanites uh, vis-a-vis agriculture is they think beef and dairy are evil mm-hmm. for, for well, a variety of reasons, but but the. Uh, but the, there is a sort of a connection with, as you say, uh, forage forage production. Ruminants can eat, and we can't, and it can be grown on on uh, l- high, lower quality land as well. So, so, and that's one of the issues that seems to escape that whole discourse around beef and dairy. Absolutely, is they can eat things we can't and turn it into something that we can eat. No, there's a, there's a wonderful paper by Paige Stanley and others, and she did this in Michigan, and she looks at rotational grazing, but a very good form of rotational grazing, which is adaptive multi-paddock grazing, and that is to say that you're you're moving the cattle at least once a day, maybe two or three times a day. This means that there's a long recovery time. Those forages are are being grazed maybe five, six times a year. So there's a pulse effect, and uh, the roots are sequestering their carbon into mm-hmm. the soil. So they're building soil organic carbon. And she argued that that system, even when you take into account the methane, which is 30 times worse than CO2, the CO2 equivalent per kilogram of meat means that those cattle and pasture, because of the pasture sequestering mm-hmm. carbon, there's still a net sequestration of about six kilograms of CO2 per kilogram of meat. Yeah. In a feedlot, it goes the other way. There's a net emission of six kilograms of CO2 per kilogram of meat. At the end of the paper, they say yes. It would take twice as much land if all the cattle were grazed rather than being on feedlots. <clears throat> but then when you look at how much meat we eat in North America, I'm quite sure that we could cut our meat consumption in half, which would probably be a lot closer to what it was um, historically. And it would be better quality meat. And it would be meat that is produced by grazing cattle that mm-hmm. actually sequester carbon, not to mention all the soil yeah. health effects. So that's that's one of my uh, favorite papers, and I can beat a drum about that paper for quite a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, and, I, and I wish that was the kind of nuanced discussion we could have, a public discourse about mm-hmm. it, but we're not, we're not there. We're into the cartoon right. version, <laughs> version of some other discussion. <laughs> but it's a good segue into sort of the whole soil health uh, area because you have a chapter devoted to that and obviously I would happy to have that and, and, and the work that we did together on soil strategy figures fairly prominently in that. Things have changed dramatically uh, from 30 years ago or 40 or 50 even more so and and, and now we have uh, soil health seems to be everywhere in the agriculture world. Mm-hmm. Everyone's talking about it and everyone's thinking about it how they can do it and they're Many people are doing lots of things about it. Whether they're doing enough is certainly debatable. But you know, you have food and health organization, uh, sorry, food and agriculture organization of the UN, U.S. Department of Agriculture, Syngenta, General Mills, our federal and provincial governments that are all talking. So they're all over it. Uh, and we have the soil health strategy we worked on, and and farm organizations in Ontario are keen on this too. So does that give you hope for change? Uh-huh. Yes and no. I, I, I mean, I, I do feel some hope because there's discussion about it, and, and there is some movement 
down on the farms. But <clears throat> the common rotation in Ontario, for example, is still yeah. corn, soy, corn, soy. And the rotation plots that we have out at the Alora Research Station that Bill Dean is managing right now mm -hmm. show very clearly that if you just have a simple rotation of only corn or corn soy, that soil organic matter levels are lower and the yields of the corn and soybean are lower than corn and soybean that's in a more complex rotation, including forages. And what is also so fascinating about that, it's a paper that Emily Godin published with us uh, in 2015. So the yields of corn and soybean in fields with complex rotations tend to be even more different or more, they're higher, that much higher than yields of corn and soybean that are in just the corn or the corn-soybean rotation. And yet in Ontario, that is still our most <clears throat> common rotation. On 82% of farms, you know the data from uh, yep. from our report that you know, we're still losing soil yep. organic matter. So I feel impatient because of that yeah and i and that's fair i think because you know the the as you say the data show that change is needed but change is not happening at the rate but i've noticed in and at southwest ag this year uh, dave hooker was, gave a talk about uh crop mm -hmm. rotations and he was very unequivocal in saying that corn and soy is he doesn't consider it a rotation because <laughs> it doesn't do what crop rotation is supposed to do. Right. And he told a little story about uh, about saying that down in Iowa or the Midwest. He was fearful <laughs> of saying it, and, and he got a reaction. Right. But uh, so, but people are saying it. So yes. Yeah. No, I, I I think that's very true, and I, it it's really important to say it and to name what is actually happening. And I think there's also a great opportunity here for the farm community, because we uh, in the farm community in agriculture um, are criticized for a lot of things we do. But if farmers were actually rewarded for taking carbon out of the air and putting it in the soil, that's a good thing from the point of view of society, because we want to mm -hmm. take carbon out of the air and farmers can do that more carbon in our soils, we'll have better soil health. Mm -hmm. It's in the interest of everybody to want that. The first thing we have to do, according to our friend Woody Van Arkel, is to stop having soil organic soil organic carbon go down. Like we have to stop yep. that slide, mm -hmm. and then we have to start rebuilding. And the sooner we do both, the better. <laughs> well, why don't we uh, finish up our interview with you uh, doing uh, another reading from the book? So sure. What are you going to read for us now? Th this is from the chapter on recovering diversity, chapter eleven. <laughs> there are numerous benefits to having perennial forage crops, especially red clover and other forage legumes on the landscape. Forages reduce erosion and compaction and increase soil organic matter, microbial activity, and water holding capacity, to name a few benefits other than those attributed to pollinators. For all the benefits of forage crops, there is increasing resistance to the growing of them because the foragers are ruminants, cattle and sheep. They emit methane, a greenhouse gas with about 30 times more warming potential than CO2. However, Stanley et al. demonstrated that with well-managed grazing, that is, adaptive multipatic grazing, greenhouse gas emissions could be offset through soil carbon sequestration. Therefore, this type of grazing can be a net carbon sink. 
They acknowledge that adaptive multi-paddock grazing requires twice as much land as feedlot finished beef, and this implies that less beef will be produced in any given region. However, there is the benefit of net carbon sequestration. We need more carbon in the soil and less in the air. Furthermore, people experience health benefits by eating grass-fed beef and by eating less meat overall. Half of current beef consumption will meet all our dietary needs. Well, thanks, Ralph, for coming in and sharing your book with the audience at CFRU and on the podcast as well. So Ralph's book, uh, Food Security, From Excess to Enough, is published by Dundurn Press and is available on the bookshelf where I got my copy in downtown Guelph and most other bookstores, the real ones and online. And it has a forward by Elizabeth May as well. So we'll leave it at that. Thanks a lot, Ralph. Thank you. I really appreciate the privilege. Thanks, Paul. You've heard Ralph Martin talking about his book, Food Security, From Excess to Enough, and his thoughts, research, early influences, and stories that went into that book. If you have thoughts about what you've heard, please send us your comments via Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And there's more to learn through the links that are provided in the show notes on the podcast site. Thanks so much to Ralph Martin for coming in for the interview. And please tune in next week to Food Farm Talk on CFRU 93.3 FM in Guelph, Ontario, Canada, and anytime on podcast on various platforms. Thanks a lot for listening.